Batten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hi, Gerard. Hello, Ian. The series, of course, brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. The idea, as I think you will know by now, is that these are areas of uh, EU life and policy uh, that is either riled or intrigued, uh, Gerard. Usually riled, I think, is probably about right, and I'm sure the riling was off the scale after the Chequers Summit. Well, well, do you know, Ian, I can't get too worked up about it because, as uh, our listeners will know, I've constantly predicted that Mrs May is going to sell us down the river on that. It's precisely what she's done. And, uh, you know, it, it, you get past being angry about it because it it's now so blatant, so utterly blatant. She doesn't even care where everybody knows she's selling them down the river because that's what they're going to do. And you can like it or lump it and they really don't care. Um, and, of course, we, we had this marathon session at Chequers whereby they came up with this uh, proposal because it isn't a deal because it has to go before the European... Commission and the Council yet for acceptance. Although, of course, she did check it out with her boss, Mrs Merkel, uh, to make sure it was acceptable to her uh, before she actually told her cabinet ministers. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's another complete betrayal of everything that Brexit was supposed to be, which was a referendum decision to leave the European Union. And what she said two years ago, she didn't want a deal whereby we were half in and half out. Well, true to her word, she's proposing something here where we're more in than we are out. If I go through what Mrs May has published recently, which is this Our Brexit Deal for Britain, this is a 12-point bullet points, which she published on the 7th of July. If I take you through those at um, you know breakneck speed, you can see what's wrong with it. Number one, leaving the EU on the 29th of March 2019. Well, not really, because what she's got in the rest of the agreement means that we leave in, uh, in name, but not really in reality. And I'll explain that as we go through. Now, number two, ending free movement and taking back control of our borders. Well, again, not really, because in this it talks about a mobility framework, which is just another double-speak gobbledygook for meaning, really, we're still going to keep open borders. And Sajid Javid today, I believe, in the newspapers, reported as saying that we won't have a visa system for EU citizens. Well, what does that mean? That means they can turn up if they want to. And, of course, what I've said all along for this for years is that we would need some some of the European countries we could have visa-free access, like we used to uh, years ago, where people from um, you know countries like Germany or Italy or France or the Netherlands don't need a visa because they're similar economies. We're not going to have a massive influx of uh, people looking for work. They won't come unless they've got a job to go to, whereas we probably will need visas for countries like Eastern Europe, where... They've got a lot of people on very low living standards who want to come here to work, you know, as cheap labour. So therefore, we would need some kind of visa control. That's not going to happen, it would seem. Point three, uh, no more vast sums of money each year to the EU. Well, that's not really true because she's already agreed she's going to give them £39 billion, which I think is a vast amount of money. The only money that they could really reasonably ask for would be the amount of money that would be due if we stayed in up to the end of the current budget period, which is 2020. And I don't think it would be that much. And if you were going to offer that, you wouldn't offer it up front. You'd wait until you'd got the concessions you wanted before you actually offered them any money at all. But she's already promised £39 billion. Number four, a new business-friendly customs model with freedom to strike new trade deals around the world. Well, there has been an excellent analysis of this, the big 18-page document, uh, by Martin Howe QC, who's a constitutional expert. And he points out that actually 
this uh, supposed customs deal with freedom to strike trade deals around the world is not the case. We're going to be bound by a common rule book on rules and regulations, standards for products that we want to send to the European Union. This in itself will hamper our ability to trade with uh, third countries and reach trade deals with third countries because the rules for our goods and products are going to be set by the European Union. Um, I recommend reading that. It's quite a, a, a long document of 18 pages, but it is, uh, it is a very good analysis of the whole thing in detail. Number five, a UK-EU free trade area with a common rule book for industrial goods and agricultural products, which will be good for jobs. Well, whose jobs? Because if we're following their common rule book, then they're going to be setting the rules for products. They could actually be doing that to disadvantage us, which would benefit them and not us. And, of course, we're not in the European Union, so we won't be able to influence those rules and regulations anyway. To be fair, not that we have a lot of influence over them anyway. The government is normally defeated in the council when it tries to uh, prevent something happening, and that's happened on many, many occasions. So that's a bit of a, a, a red herring. Commitment to maintain high standards on consumer and employment rights in the environment. Well, we can do that anyway under our own law. We can make whatever laws we want if we're outside of the European Union. Parliamentary lock on all new rules and regulations. Well, that's a bit theoretical because if you've already agreed that there's going to be a common rule book, then how can you have a lock on new rules and regulations? You're either in it or you're not in it. Number eight, leaving the common agricultural policy and common fisheries policy. But it's already been said earlier on, we're in, we've got this common rule book which will also apply to agricultural products. So how is that getting out of the common agricultural policy? And it talks about leaving the common fisheries policy, but there's nothing really in the document to say how we're going to take back our territorial waters and our economic exclusive economic zone and return the fishing industry to our control. Nothing to talk about that. Uh, and in fact, I think it was Gove who said something about we make sure that we get our fair share. Well, hang on a minute. It's all our fair share because it's our territorial waters. And what we should be saying is whether we're going to allow other people to fish in them and what the terms will be and how much the licenses are going to cost until we build our own fishing industry back up. So, again, that's a, um, a falsehood, I think. Restoring the supremacy of British courts by ending the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in the UK. Well, that's not true because in the document it says that disputes about trade or these rules and regulations, etc., will still be decided by the European Court of Justice. So we're not going to get away from their jurisdiction. Number 10, no hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland or between Northern Ireland and GB. Well, this whole thing has always been a complete nonsense because, as I've said on these broadcasts before, Ireland is always a special case because of its history. There, You've got a nation of 65 million people sharing a border with 5 million people in Ireland, roughly. Most of their trade goes via the Northern Irish border, a lot of it anyway, and so I've seen a figure that 90% of their energy comes from the UK to Southern Ireland. So why would they want a border? So everything could continue as normal. We could do a special arrangement, because lots of special arrangements between uh, Southern, the Republic of Ireland and Britain, and who's going to build that hard border if we don't? Are we, if we say to them, well, everything continues in the same way, let's, let's, uh, there's no problem, who's going to build that border? The Southern Irish, are they going to put one up? I don't think so. Is the EU going to send the Polish workers over to build one? I don't think so. So, again, another load of nonsense. So you don't need a border, then? No, 
you could carry on with the existing arrangements. You could do so what, if you want one, build one. Well, exactly. It's their it's their problem, not ours. And it isn't really a, it, it isn't really a British Republic of Ireland problem because we could just continue with things the way they are now, and and put together whatever solution we need uh, between the two countries because that's what happens now. What other country in the world? has, for example, the common travel area that we do that allows Southern Irish citizens to come here and vote in our elections. That's a pretty much a, a unique uh, setup. So why can't we have another unique setup to deal with trade and all this customs uh, union nonsense? Continue close cooperation on security to keep our people safe. That's point 11. Now, this is the most worrying one, really, because when Mrs May gave her speech in Florence, uh, in I think it was earlier this year, uh, she spoke about a security treaty, a new security treaty. What that means is that we're going to be locked into the EU's ambitions for a European army. They talk about this all the time. Well, they do call it a def- uh, they do call it a, um, a defence identity or some other euphemism that they use. But it, what it really means is an EU army. And of course, we're also going to be locked into the police and criminal justice measures, such as the European arrest warrant, where any one of us can be carted off on the basis of allegations on a piece of paper and no evidence. So I don't want to be bound by that, but she seems... Again, it's under this complete fallacy that somehow this is keeping us safe. It's not. It's removing and making sure that they stay permanently removed some of our most basic freedoms under English legal tradition, the freedom not to be arbitrarily arrested and imprisoned. That's gone under a European arrest warrant. Habeas corpus no longer applies under a European arrest warrant. You have no remedy. So I'm certainly not pleased about that. And number 12, an independent foreign and defence policy working closely with the EU and other allies. Oh, do you really believe that? The previous one talks about, uh, you know, the security arrangement. We're going to be bound into the EU security and defence policy and foreign policy. Um, we're not going to be free from that. This whole thing is a complete betrayal of what the referendum decision was meant to implement. And what happens next? Well, there's speculation about whether the European Union will accept this or not, and some people are saying they won't. Well, I heard someone today said to me that Barnier is alleged to say, have said, well, we've got 80% of what we want. So my guess would be when, they, when she takes this back, they'll say, well, we want the other 20%, and they may reject it. I don't know. I don't think they will, because i tell you what this does. If they accept this agreement, or this proposal for an agreement, and don't forget they've yet also to publish their withdrawal uh, agreement, which has to be voted on by the European Parliament and by the Council. What this would do, if we were on these terms, it kind of puts us on the same status as an applicant country, a country that's trying to join the European Union. For example, Moldova or Albania is one of the countries that wants to join. They have to put their rules and regulations in alignment with the EU before they actually... Uh, it's like running to get like onto... A achieving process. It's, it's like running alongside a moving staircase in order to jump on. Uh, and that's what they have to do. And except we're doing it in reverse so that we are really supposedly leaving the European Union but leaving ourselves in all this alignment. And my view is that so that in a year, two, three years' time, the government of the day, whether it be Tory or Labour, can apply to rejoin. Because from a political point of view, Mrs May said one thing that I do believe. She said she doesn't want any more members of the European Parliament, UK members of the European Parliament, after the 29th of March next year, when we all leave, our jobs come to an end. What she really means is she doesn't want any more UKIP MEPs because it's a proportional representation system. We topped the poll last time in 2014 on this issue, the European issue, and she knows if there was an election now for the European Parliament, we'd 
you know, we, we topped the poll again with a lot more votes and seats than we got last time. So that's what she really wants. Get rid of UKIP off the scene so that it dies. She hopes that isn't going to happen, by the way. And then we're safe to come get back in the water in another two, three, four years' time. We can rejoin. This isn't a, this broadcast isn't about UKIP, but I can tell you that UKIP is far from being uh, on the way out. In fact, our fortunes are rising. We're getting members are flooding in now because uh, partly because of uh, this this um, deal that she's proposing. A number of other reasons as well. Money's coming in, members are coming in, and we're actually getting stronger all the time. Um, so that's where we are with that. I think the whole thing's a disaster. I think the British people think it's a disaster. And from what I hear, people are leaving the Conservative Party in droves because even them, uh, you know, even the loyalists that they've got left realise that they've been betrayed. And, of course, we've seen ministers resigning. We've seen uh, David Davis go, who was supposed to be the chief negotiator. We've seen Boris go and two other ministers Chairman are resigning around the country. I think this is going to force a leadership election for the Conservative Party. I'd be surprised if it didn't. I know she'll hang on every... She'll do everything she possibly can to hang on because she's there to serve the interests of the EU, not the British people. But I think she may well be forced out. From Chequers to Strasbourg. Well, that was very... Your, inter- favorite, your second <laughs> favourite place. Well, there was something quite interesting went on... Last week uh, was that well, a first? Uh, no, no. We this it's very it's very rare that you can actually make some a difference in the European Parliament, and there's only three occasions. This is the third one that I can think of in the last fourteen years. There's something called the Copyright Directive. I don't know whether you've heard about this, um, which was going to go through on the nod. Let me explain what it was. This proposed directive. Uh, would really been disastrous for people who are involved in the alternative media business, alternative news, because what it was proposing uh, was that in order to use other people's material, if you wanted to retweet or put on Facebook a, um, a part of a TV programme or whatever, as happens all the time now, or re, you know retweet something, you would have to have permission or have paid a fee in order to do that. Now, only large companies would have been able to uh, report on the news because of the high fees that would have been involved in having the links to other news sources. And Article 15 was something that we had lots of uh, emails about, and that was to stop... Now, Article 15, the original intention, or so it would seem, would be to stop the downloading of whole um, movies and films, for example, which is perfectly reasonable. You know, you can't have people stealing your copyrighted... Your work. uh, Your work, uh, and that's perfectly understandable but this was overkill because what it would have done it would have included uh, well it would have meant that all all content would have to be filtered so that the um, the the platform can know what you're sending out stop you sending out anything that belongs to somebody else uh, and you would have either had to have permission or pay a fee what they call a link tax in order to do this and of course what that would have done is destroyed twitter overnight because we do it all the time it's um you, you 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 get a clip of a, of a news program or something that somebody's filmed and you retweet it. It's kind it of been seen as sort of fair usage. Exactly, that's exactly the point I was going to make here. And there is a thing called fair usage, which is a bit like when you write a book and you quote somebody else's book as a, and you put the reference where you got it from, yeah. providing you're doing that in a kind of uh, reporting manner yeah. and, and an your, illustrative your manner. Your intent is clearly not to nick someone's exactly, program. Exactly, but to ref, to refer to the contents of somebody book. else's. Well, and indeed, it's kind of a free advert, isn't it? If sure. People may well go and buy the book that you've you've referred to. So that's perfectly reasonable. Anything like that would have been stopped. 
Um, so there and, were people trying to stop that? Well, what happened was, if I can explain, there, there was a big campaign um, to, do, to, to try and do something about this. The, the way that it was going to work was this directive, the, re, the draft directive, was going to go through to secret negotiations, what's called trialogue. It's an EU-invented word, I think. Uh, so there's, the, the parliament would have sent its representative, which was the, um, the what's called the rapporteur, the man that faces up the whole thing, and he probably didn't write it. It's written for him by civil servants. He would go and have negotiations with the council and the commission. What then would have come out of that would be a finished article, which would then have come for a vote, and we would have had a yes or no vote on the whole thing. So if we hadn't have defeated it with a no vote, then, of course, it would have been implemented as it stood. So what I did, uh, what UKIP did, and indeed other people in the Parliament did, Greens and individual MEPs, was to demand a vote which stopped this going to trialogue so that, it, so that then it would have to go before the Parliament to be debated and so that uh, they could add amendments. So we couldn't stop it, but we could, de- we could actually bring it back to the Parliament so that it could be properly scrutinised. So what we did is we got together, uh, and if enough people asked for this vote, then it had to happen. So we were able to get that support in the Parliament, enough MEPs to actually do that. So how did we actually get MEPs to vote for not sending this to trialogue? So it was one of those occasions in the European Parliament where a no means positive thing if you see what I mean Uh, so I was very fortunate that we've actually been able to recruit uh, into UKIP recently and I've become friendly with uh, internet activists like um, Paul Joseph Watson and Sargon of ACAD uh, Carl Benjamin as well as uh, the famous uh, Count Dunkula and his his dog anyway what we got with these people is they actually put this out to their on their platforms to all of their I think they've got literally millions of uh, followers and people that look at them asking them to write to their MEPs asking them to support our vote that this shouldn't go through to the trialogue uh, and they did that and every MEP I can tell you including me got thousands upon thousands of emails from their constituents what that meant was we did actually achieve the vote in the parliament and we managed to um, get a vote in favour of not sending it through to the trial. It was only a majority of about 40, but nevertheless we won it. And what that means is now it must come before the Parliament in September. It will be debated. MEPs will have a chance to put amendments in. We will get a yes or no vote on the whole thing as well. So hopefully we can kill the whole thing. But at least those who believe in European legislation will have a chance to amend it so that it's not as drastic as it otherwise would have been. Because what's behind this is... Like a lot of this legislation, it has been um, lobbied for on behalf of big business, the big media companies who want to put the smaller people out of business. And I think it's what's more sinister than that, it's gonna, it would actually be a way of closing down alternative media. Now, more and more people, including me, after a lifetime of watching the mainstream media, now get our stories and our information from alternative media because we don't trust. John Cleese was on Newsline and he had, a, he had the own, EU's own... Um, opinion polls which they publish every year and the UK has been for many years bottom of the poll in terms of public trust of the media so I think it's very sinister that, that this whole thing would have shut that down uh, and now it's got a breathing space so hopefully that isn't going to happen what happens next it comes back to the parliament in September as I said uh, and we will be able to, to scrutinise it and have another vote
but only twice before has this happened in my 14 years in the Parliament. One was on something called the Ports Directive, which was about privatising ports. We had a lot of French uh, dockers turn up. They wanted to burn the building down. Um, MEPs thought better of it and it was voted down. Commissioner came before the Parliament and said, oh, I'm very sorry that uh, it didn't go through, but we'll bring it back in the future to a more compliant Parliament. And I've always remembered his words, even though I have a very bad memory for most things. And what did they do? It took some years, but it came back just a couple of years ago, I think, and then got passed through in a different form. The other thing which we were able to defeat because of a mass campaign by people across Europe was um, an intellectual property right directive, which would have basically made ideas intellectual property. So if somebody had had the bright idea of inventing a spreadsheet before they were invented, under this directive, once you'd had that idea, nobody else could work on a spreadsheet. It's your idea. So you wouldn't have had a Microsoft spreadsheet and an Apple spreadsheet. You would like we put in that into action. Yep. So that was, but that's again big business. I uh, would have been behind that because they have an idea. Well, you want to stop anybody else working on it. That was a, there was a mass campaign of emails to MEPs, and that was defeated. I'm happy to say. And this is the third time. Well, this is not defeated yet, but hopefully it will be. But this is only the third time in all the years I've been there that I can think of something where. Uh, a, a rebellion of the ordinary citizens has actually got MEPs to think twice and stop something happening. Uh, you, a final point, Gerard, you've written Polish president. Ah, well, this I had a bit of fun last week in Strasbourg. You must have some fun. Is I got actually uh, legal to have fun <laughs> in Strasbourg. Well, they weren't very happy about what I said. I got the prime slot because uh, as leader of the the EFDD group, Nigel wasn't able to make a speech. Uh, so I was asked to do it, and I got three and a half minutes. And then before I went down there, I was told that I could have four and a half minutes because somebody else had pulled out. So I got a whole four and a half minutes, which is a very long time. I mean, normally I get 60 seconds, 90 seconds if I'm really lucky. So it was the Polish Prime Minister there. He was talking about the future of Europe. And so what I did is I it took the opportunity, since it was Poland, to remind the Parliament that the... European Union actually had its origins in a document produced by Nazi Germany, I think it was 1942, when they thought they were going to win the war, they produced an economic plan for how they were going to run their empire and its economy after the war. And it was called the Europäische Wirtschaftsgemeinschaft, which translated means European Economic Community. I think they produced that about 1942. It was German bankers and industrialists who wrote this plan. Of course, it never happened, but funnily enough, the plan reappeared in 1956-57 when they created the European Economic Community. And the original document talked about things like a common agricultural policy, a common industrial policy. It wanted to link external exchange rates to the Reichsmarks of their conquered countries. And funnily enough, what have we got all these years later? We've got common policies on everything you can think of and we've got the European single currency, which is a step further where everybody's exchange rate is linked to the German Deutschmark. So I pointed this out to them and they got a little bit upset about this and, uh, you know, that I'd pointed this historical fact out to them. And the commissioner, one of the commissioners sitting, by the way, from me, I think of Mr Dombrovsky, uh, was um, mentioned the name of the first president of the European Commission, somebody called Walter Halstein. And I pointed out to him that Walter Halstein had actually been a lawyer who'd worked for the Nazis. And I've actually got uh, a little bit of his biography here. He was uh, he worked for Nazi organisations calling the National, including 
the National Socialist University Lecturers Association. He uh, was part of the National Socialist League for the Protection of the Law. And in 1938, he represented the Nazi government in negotiations with fascist Italy concerning the legislative framework for a Nazi Europe. And he was the first president of the commission from January 1958 until June 1967. It isn't a conspiracy theory. It's historical fact. Um, and what amused me was when I tweeted out this uh, speech, uh, I got a lot of comments back, a lot of the people who were very happy to who don't know this is true and were happy that I said it in public, other people called me a Nazi for actually saying it, which I <laughs> found a bit odd. Uh, but you do get very odd comments on Twitter, so I'm afraid that's the way it is. But it's, it's an interesting historical fact that, uh, you know, the origins of the way that the EU was set up was actually a German plan, wartime German plan, and we're living under it now, the, the development of that economic plan. That is it from this episode. Gerard, thank you. Uh, if you've got anything you'd like to add or contribute to future episodes, then, of course, follow Gerard on Twitter at Gerard Batten, M-E-P.